This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, Episode 48. This is Writing Excuses Project in Depth, The Devil's Only Friend. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And I'm not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And I'm... On the chopping block today. <laughs> it's only fair considering how many people you have put on that chopping block. We are going to talk about The Devil's Only Friend, John Cleaver novel. Um, John Cleaver 4. My number's five? right? That is five. correct. It is four. number four. four. Yes. Four or as five. I prefer to think of it, it is book one of a second John Cleaver trilogy. Yes. Now, as with all of the Project and Death episodes, we are going to dig deeply into the story hopefully give you a lot of insight about how we wrote them. We really, really, really recommend that you read this story first or listen to it. Uh, The Audible version is done by Kirby Hayborn, a very good reader. You should do this now. Pause the episode. Come back after you've read it because we are going to give huge spoilers. And let me be clear, it's not just lip service when I say that it is book one of a new series. It will spoil the first series for you, but it is designed to be read alone. So if you haven't read the first three, you can jump in on this one and Mm -hmm. be totally fine. In fact, I've had several reviewers not know it was book four. (laughs) Except for the fact that it's just horrific and you won't sleep well. (laughs) Right, right. It's like they've gotten worse and worse, Dan. In a good way. Yeah. By worse and worse, he does mean better and better. Yes. Like when you wrote the first one. The first John Cleaver book, I'm like, this is probably the most horrifying thing I've ever read. And then, and then you, you read the second one. Have yep. consistently one-upped it. Yep. I I am convinced that the devil's only friend is actually referring to you. Yeah. <laughs> so Dan, um, second John Cleaver trilogy. I remember when you finished the first uh, trilogy, and I asked you, "Are you going to do more?" You were really kind of iffy. You're like, ah. It, I had never intended to do more because John's character arc concluded in what I thought was a very satisfying way. Uh, the plot was certainly open for more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, book three ends with him essentially cutting a deal with the FBI. I've exposed right. myself. You hide that and I'll help you hunt these things. Right. Uh, and See, so- that sounds like an a story <laughs> launch off to me. It does. It sounds like it's a superhero it absolutely story. Does, mm-hmm. Which is why my editors kept saying, please write more stuff, but for me, the character, right. John's character had concluded so firmly that I didn't want to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And what convinced me is actually the, the kind of weird expatriate vibe that I got from moving to Germany oh. and realizing I am still me, but I'm, in an, I'm me in a different place. And so the experiences that I'm having are, are being filtered differently and and what I did you do in Germany? <laughs> oh my I'm, gosh! Seriously, so, made some sausage. So I decided. I ne- basically what it took was me figuring out if I write more about John, where is it going to go? The first trilogy is him basically learning how to feel again, mm-hmm. and the second trilogy is him saying, "I've got emotions, and that sucks because emotions are painful." And the the basic character hook of I have to take care of Brooke now is right. what drives most of this second trilogy. Okay, excellent. Now, I expected John to be older in this 
than he ended up being. Like when I had talked to you, like you, I remember you talking about maybe we'll come back and visit him in 10 years um, and something. And no, it kind of goes right in from the other ones, even though there is yeah. that separation. There, there's about one year. Yeah. And you get some brief back story of him saying, yeah, over the past year since I've hooked up with these guys, you know, we've killed a couple of demons and things. Uh, the reason for that, because I, I had intended to kind of age him up, you know, maybe send him through mortuary school or something. He is so different emotionally now than he was before mm-hmm. that keeping him as a teenager helped him feel familiar to readers. That's so a, that he could yeah. still be the John they loved, even though he was different. Hmm. That's a that that was a really good observation of you to make. It also. Uh, when you ended the first trilogy, I, I said jokingly, it was a superhero origin story, you know, mm. and, and this is where I hooked up with my super team at the FBI. Uh, <laughs> Whom you this, murdered. This, <laughs> they, they didn't last very long, did they? They did, not last very, they did not last very long, but the salient point here is that when you begin this story, I am expecting John to be in a position where he has a little bit more power over his own fate and that's not the position he's in. He's kind of downtrodden by the mm-hmm. folks around him. Mm-hmm. He's respected for one thing, but he's not really respected very much. And anytime they go out in public, uh, who's this kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't let him ever drive the car, which chafes him a lot. Um, he, uh, he I, I remember there was a, a, a review of book three where they said they didn't, they really didn't like the ending where the FBI kind of comes in and says, okay, you're going to work for us now. And for this reviewer, that was a kind of undermining the sense of loneliness that mm. John has because now he's got this team backing him up. And in my mind, it was always a case of no. If you know John, you know that he, he has never reacted well to authority. And now that he has to constantly be working with other people, he has to take orders from people. It's the relationship he had with his mom only amped way up because it's also his boss mm-hmm. and it's the government. John does not like that, and so... Well, it plays into horror tropes. You, you, uh, horror is you are isolated. Yes. Even when you are surrounded by people, by not being able to trust them, by not being able to trust yourself, by not being able to trust what's going on around you, and that, this played very much into that. And one of the things that I like that you, you did with that, and again, it's giving us the sense of familiarity with with John uh, from from the previous books, is that he's constantly thinking about how to kill them. Yes, he has. Then uh, that that's somewhat inspired by you know the the joke about Batman that he's got mm-hmm. a secret plan to kill everyone on the Justice League if he needs to. Yep. John totally has one of those for everyone on his team, and he thinks about them. You know, to keep his his edges honed, <laughs> which is always the chapter that I read when uh-huh. I do readings, because uh-huh. it's so great to have him sit there having a conversation with people, but then also thinking, Howard's not even looking at me right now. I could snap his neck. <laughs> Did you- Ed, oh, can I tell this really <laughs> oh, quick yeah, story? I don't want to take too much time. Oh, but- it's your time to take. So I. <laughs> I, I was writing this while I lived in Germany, and uh, my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter's bedroom is just down the hall. And uh, so I was writing that scene where he's sitting in the car, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, w- one of the members of the team is driving. I think it's Kelly. And he's, think- he's looking at her thinking, you know, this is how I could kill her right now. Just slide a knife 
right there into her neck between those, you know, I was about to write vertebrae and then I thought, wait a minute, is that the best way? Hey, Audrey, come in here. <laughs> and I had her sit on a chair facing away from me so I could look at the back of her neck and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just looking at your neck, why? I want to know where to stick a knife. Dad! <laughs> What's wrong with you? Oh. Yes, you're exactly the person we're going to argue can't tell their story. <laughs> Instead, we're going to scoot our chairs away. No. Yes. Um, like, did, are we done with this podcast now? <laughs> did you do anything different in the plotting um, or writing of this book that you haven't done before? Ooh, on the spot. That'll keep him th- from thinking about killing us. That's yeah, that's a good. I was thinking. That's and it was nice when he looked at the ceiling like that. Mm-hmm. Totally exposed the jugular. Totally exposed <laughs> all the major arteries. Um. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I would still have to lean toward him in order to strike the throat, and that might telegraph the punch. That's the trick. Dan, why don't you think about that question while I tell people about the Book of the Week. Okay. The Book of the Week is The Devil's Only Friend by Dan Wells. This is a fantastic story that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Um, It is some of the finest writing Dan has ever done, and he is an amazing writer. Uh, It is really cool to see how he is rebooting without rebooting the John Cleaver books. Um, It was really cool to see him trying some new things with the series, Um, and it was really heartbreaking to see some of the stuff that he did. Um, Before I tell you how to go get this book, I know Brandon already told you to go get the book, Mm -hmm. and so you should have gone and gotten the book, but in truest horror movie fashion, we screamed, don't go down in the basement, and here you are in the basement, and so here are your instructions for getting out of the basement. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership and have somebody read about the basement to you. There is a basement in this book, and it's it's pretty dark it's and terrible. It's a great place. Um, okay, so one of the interesting things that I did with this book is I have always wanted to do a John Cleaver story from a demon's point of view. Right. Uh, because... Mostly because I loved the kind of dramatic irony of the, re- the, the main character noticing this kid who's kind of slowly inserting himself into his life and the reader going, no, 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 if that guy's making friends with you and mowing your lawn, you're dead. <laughs> um, and so I did, I, what I did was a novella mm-hmm. that I self-published called Next of Kin that is about a character named Elijah, who is a demon who steals other people's memories. 
And, and he's kind of a nice demon. Yeah. Compared he is. to the others, he's a very nice um, demon. He's actually, because he has essentially lived 10,000 years with human memory, he identifies mm-hmm. more with us than he does with them. And he is one of the, the good guys, so to speak, in The Devil's Only Friend. And this novella takes place concurrent with it, with a lot of scenes from uh, the opposite point of view. And so, you know, I, I wrote one of them first, and then in writing the other one, sat there with the first one open oh, on a separate thing so I could so make cool. sure the dialogue was exact and mm-hmm. the actions were exact, um, but that you're perceiving them differently. And in particular, the uh, scene where they very first meet and have a little conversation in the lobby of a rest home, and they are doing the exact same things and interpreting them so differently. Uh, Elijah is watching this kid and thinking, what is wrong with him? You can tell he is messed up. Something has gone horribly wrong with his life. I wonder if I can help him. And John is looking at him saying, why is he saying that? Is he trying to kill me? Is that Mm -hmm. a trick? How can I kill him? And uh, you just kind of see two sides of that same conversation, which was a lot of fun to do. And what I actually love about the way that scene is handled in The Devil's Only Friend, because I, I have not read the the next of kin i haven't mm. read that one but i could see that they were having two different conversations i could totally tell that john was like completely jumping to the worst possible things and that elijah was just so waiting for someone or and and that was oh, that was this you know mm-hmm. yeah. innocent I, questions i but. really liked elijah um, partially because of the novella, partially because of the, the book. Um, but it re- led me down a road where I thought you were going to pull a Buffy, meaning um, Buffy kills vampires, she ends up with a bam- vampire best friend, well, and lover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was expecting that this is the point where, oh, you've humanized Elijah so much that Elijah is going to become the, the sidekick or the mentor or something. Um, and for those who have read the book, that doesn't happen. Um, so my like, my wife still has not forgiven me for killing Elijah. Mm-hmm. She was super pissed. Is that why you did it? Um, in part. Um, <laughs> I like you know, the answer there needs to be no. Are you consciously <laughs> avoiding the trope? Because that is a trope, or is it just what the story felt you felt like it needed? Part of it is because I want to avoid the trope. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because. I mean, since this is the spoiler-tastic episode, it's yeah. the same reason that I killed Marcy. Right. Because I love Marcy. She is my favorite character in this series. Mm-hmm. And that meant her death would mean something to the reader. You and Joss Whedon. <laughs> well, I very much, when, uh, uh, when uh, Kelly Ishida dies uh, mm-hmm. so early, I, I had up to that point very much felt like she was the heart of the team from John's point of view. And now that she was gone, all bets were off. And invoking Joss Whedon, that was a, well, I could live sort of moment where no, the answer is no. Any of you at this point could die. Um, mm-hmm. is, that, is that why she died first? Was that your reasoning or? That, that was more of a lucky accident in that I needed her to die first uh, because somebody had to. And... I wanted to make sure people liked her when she died, which didn't give me a lot of time to make you like her, so I made her extra, extra lovable. Mm. To John. Yeah. Uh, she, she is one of the ones who is nicest to John. 
um, on the team. He always responds better to women than men anyway, because that's just part of who he is. Um, before we get too far away from Elijah, uh-huh. there's one thing that I, that I want to make sure to talk about. I, uh, with every book in the series, have tried to focus on a different aspect of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And with this one and with Brooke, I, I thought I'm going to write a book that's about dissociative identity disorder, where here is a, uh, a girl who has so many memories of so many other people, 10,000 years of other girls stuck in her head um and so you know she'll flip back and forth and she'll forget who she is and she'll think she's one of the other ones and that was my intention and that comes across a little bit but the the that aspect of memory and especially with elijah um who you know does not have a memory of his own and essentially has to steal memories from other people uh this became a book about alzheimer's Mm-hmm. And there are parts in this book where my, when I first got married 16 years ago, uh, for the first nine months, my wife and I lived with my grandfather who had Alzheimer's. My grandfather half raised me. I spent every day at his house, um, loved him you know, like a second father. And to watch his mind degrade you know, to, to be in a position where this man locked me out of the house because he forgot who I was and thought I was scary. I didn't realize how badly that experience messed me up until I started writing a book about loss of memory. Mm. Mm. And there are sections of this book and sections of Next of Kin that are just gaping open wounds, you know, this big glance into, here's all of Dan's messed up fears of, of Alzheimer's disease that I had not intended. Mm. But that's really kind of what this book turned into. I'm glad that the messed up parts of you are not the parts where Potash <laughs> is holding a machete. Mm. <laughs> that makes me feel marginally safer. Well, that's good. <laughs> no, you should be it's more probably scared. not good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually want to ask about a, a different character, okay. which is Boy Dog. Yes. Why does that... So you've got this dog who's obnoxious, like pees on everything. Was this, was this something that you... To, to give John something else to nurture? Or why? what was the decision to give John a dog? <laughs> you give John a pet and I'm scared. I'm just going yeah. to say that. Right out. Because um, we've seen what he does to cats. Yep. Well, and yes, that reaction is part of the reason. Um, there, there was someone on Twitter. It was actually Jessica Day George on Twitter who said, Dan, I'm reading your book, and if you kill Boy Dog, I am never going to forgive you. And I wrote back and said, I love Boy Dog. He's great. And she said, that does not make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that that is what goes back to the the origination of John Cleaver as a character uh, was my conversation with Brandon about the McDonald triad. And mm-hmm. one of those classic sociopathic traits is animal cruelty. And John has never allowed himself even to interact with animals, let alone be mean to them. And so... Except for the cat. It, yeah. Well, and that was when he broke down and, and mm-hmm. became Mr. Monster for a while, was the cat. I kind of wanted to make up for the cat... 
I relished the opportunity to make people super nervous about another animal, but mostly I, I wanted to give John another, you know, another painful thing. Part of it is, you know, the nurturing thing. I remember in E.T., you know, where uh, E.T. has made this um, very powerful kind of psychic connection to Elliot, but he has also made a psychic connection with a little yellow flower. And you get to watch both of them. When E.T. gets sick, Elliot and the flower both get sick. When E.T. feels better, Elliot and the flower both get better. And it's this really minor thing, but I liked that idea of mirroring, you know, John has to take care of Brooke. Well, let's also have him take care of a dog and see if that can help put him in a position where he'll be able to, in book five actually take care of Brooke mm. a little better than he could otherwise. This has been a great discussion. The book is fascinating. Your psychology is fascinating, at least from over here. Why did we bring him on a boat? Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's lots of other people. I, I do know where there. all of your rooms are, mm-hmm. um, uh, by but the way. I'm going to give you a writing prompt. Not you, Dan, but okay. the audience. Um, because we are actually still on the boat. We don't have the audience with us for this one, but we are on the Writing Excuses cruise. And so I was thinking about how environment shapes stories. Um, and I wanted to give you a writing prompt to take a story that doesn't really belong on a boat and set it on a boat, or even one that you'd never considered, and see what kind of, and I should say ship, because this is a ship. But you, you should set say it on, ship. You set it on a ship, and you see how that environment tweaks your story. Um, I found this a very useful way of reconceptualizing stories that I'm working on. So... This has been Ryan Excuses. Dan, thank you for being in the hot seat. Thank you very much for spending the whole episode talking about how great I am. And you listeners, you are out of excuses. Now go write a book as good as Dan's. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, And I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 